0: podcast. Welcome to the Bright Podcast, the podcast for professionals in doctoral education. I'm Lukas Zinner and I'm working at the University of Vienna and also a member of the board of the Bright Network. Our topic today is the making of supervisors. And it's my real pleasure today to talk to Stan Taylor. Stan is honorary professor of the School of Education and was former director of the Centre for Academic and Research and Development at Durham University. Stan, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me.
1: It's my pleasure entirely.
0: So I, I would say, personally, I would say I know you pretty well for many years. You are very active in the field of doctoral studies, in particularly in the UK, but not only, and in particular in the area of Doctoral Supervision. So if you don't mind, I would like to start with a more personal question. Of course. So I would be interested. So actually, what made you decide to get involved in academic staff development? Well, the,
1: the, um, the, the driver for my interest in, in uh, academic staff development in the context of, of doctoral education was very much my own experiences um, many, many years ago as a research student. I had a supervisor who had a, a very strong laissez-faire philosophy about supervision. And unfortunately, uh, I know many of my, my many of my colleagues thrived in that culture. I found it very, very difficult. I needed a lot more support than I got. And the whole experience was, was traumatic. Um, I got through it and I, I got appointed at a young age um, to a lectureship. And after a year there, I, I came back from uh, leave in the summer and was told by my head of department, you've got your first research student. Um, they got a grant, they'd appointed a student. The area was close to mine. Now, the problem I had was, how do I supervise this person? Because I had no role model from my own supervisor. Uh, there was no literature or very little literature in those days. And there was nothing in the way of professional development. So I became very interested in doctoral supervision. I did a fair bit of it over the years and in the course of time began uh, mentoring other colleagues in that field. Colleagues, there's people the same as me being appointed very young, being given research students and being left to get on with it. And so that that was what sparked my interest in it. I, I do actually have an enormous um, passion for it because My personal view is that, you know, being a successful doctoral student, it's a very difficult thing because you're creating knowledge. And even worse these days, you're creating knowledge to order. It's not like in my day where it took as long as it took. These days, we're trying to get them through in three or four years. I think it's an amazing thing that people can can do that and so on, and that they deserve the very best in the way of supervision that that can be offered. That's my driver.
0: Stan, you are I would say you're well known for your handbook for doctoral supervisors. Yeah. Uh, you published the first one in 2005 together with Nigel Beasley, if yeah. I pronounce it correctly. In 2017, you did your second edition together with Margaret Kiley and Robin Humphrey. Yeah. Uh, so what was, the, what was the main driver to do so? Why to go for a second edition? What has changed in the meantime and how would you actually compare the situation from 2005 compared with the situation nowadays
1: i think in, in some ways lucas it would be easier to say what hasn't changed rather than you know than what has changed but um i mean if i can just just go through the some of the changes between 2005 2017 changed in, in student supervisor relationships we've gone away from the old master-apprentice sciences, laissez-faire arts and humanities, social sciences, um, to a model whereby research students are being encouraged to think of themselves much more as consumers. And that has created pressures on supervisors to offer higher quality supervision. I've just alluded to the change in the duration of study. It's what's known in the literature as McDonaldization, where, to say, long ago, it took you as long as it took these days it's the the mcdonald's philosophy get them in get them through and get them out within three or four years that that's becoming pretty common right across europe the days when you could spend you know half a lifetime doing it have gone that places tremendous pressures on supervisors it used to be an unregulated activity it was used to be compared to a secret garden in which the supervisor and the students sat away from the gaze of anybody and nobody paid any great attention um, to them In many countries, it's now become quite a heavily regulated activity and institutions are taking a real interest because of the quality of student experience and because of the need to maintain the throughput. So it's a regulatory environment. In terms of supervision arrangements, there has been a process in some parts of Europe, I stress the sum here, of moving from the single supervisor traditional model towards a model based on team supervision. And that model's got its advantages in terms of covering all the rest of it, but it's also got disadvantages or can have in terms of essentially a menage à toi and with disagreements and so on. And then, this is the, the, the fifth thing on this heading, there is the structuration of doctoral education. Again, it was a pretty unstructured activity, but particularly since Bologna, and the last 20 years or so, it's become heavily structured with graduate schools, doctoral training centers, doctoral colleges, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And again, that's a new institutional environment for supervisors. So that's changes at one level. A second is the diversification of the candidate population. Doctoral students used to be few and far between. They're now many. Basically, between 2000 and 2010, the number of doctoral students across the globe doubled. But unfortunately, the number of supervisors didn't double at the same time. So we're supervising more of them. There's been the internationalisation of doctoral education. We've, we've always had international doctoral students, or academics. I mean, Erasmus being a very obvious one, or, you know, Marie-Curie Slidovska, uh, et cetera. But the thing is, it's now become a huge industry with literally millions Um, of students from one country studying in another country, often with different higher education traditions and so on. And again, that's of interest for supervisors. Certainly in my own university, Durham, one in three of our staff come from outside the UK. So a common model is to have a supervisor from one country uh, supervising a student from another country, but neither of them socialised within the UK system. And that's an issue as well. There's been diversification in terms of the composition. If you go back 20 years, you will find, for example, that around 25% of doctoral students were female. So far as I'm aware, the figure now throughout the West is over 50%, uh, over half. Now, that's not been reflected among the candidate population. So that's been, that's been another issue. A further thing with the candidates is responsibility for well-being. Again, the historical view was they're adults. They can care for their own well-being, their own mental health. But uh, as you know, there have been a number of major studies uh, across Europe which have suggested that um, uh, doctoral students, for, for a variety of reasons, are uh, much more likely to face mental health issues and supervisors not being expected to deal with it in a direct sense, but to understand and to signpost students there. There have been changes in modes of study. We've gone from a predominantly full time activity to becoming in many cases part time. I, I don't know the figures for you. I suspect they're lower, but in the UK, 25% of our doctoral students are part time. As I said, I think it's probably higher than elsewhere, but that creates a difference because they're not on the campus, they're often older, more mature, families' responsibilities. Another big change, which we're feeling a lot of at the moment, has been students studying off campus. Well, currently we don't have a choice because of coronavirus, so we're having to learn, or supervisors are having to learn a whole raft of new techniques. It's not the same as doing it person to person. And then and there are three other small things involved, changes in this way. The switch from single discipline to cross-discipline. But the problem is an awful lot of supervisors self included are brought up in disciplinary silos. And it can be quite difficult to relate to other supervisors and to research students. There's been a proliferation of different types of doctoral awards as well. So whereas once you you mainly had the PhD by by research or the PhD by publication in Scandinavia, et cetera, et cetera. You've now got in a number of countries, especially the Netherlands, Belgium, the UK, professional doctorates where you have a talk component and then a shorter thesis and so on. And you've also got practice-based doctorates where part of the submission is an exegesis um, along with an artifact, maybe dancing, whatever else it might be. Again, that's challenges for supervisors. And then the final thing is that uh, in the good old days, if you did a PhD, The argument was you become an academic. Yes, in many countries in Europe, it it was the first step on the way to an academic post. You then got the habilitation thereafter. But that was the way people went. Well, now I think across Europe as a whole, yeah, the the figures for percentage of students still in academia, graduates still in academia three years after graduation, it is about one third. So over in, in the the the, the um, European higher education area, not the EU, you're looking at somewhere like one, only one in three going on to become an academic. Two in three are doing other things. And again, this involves supervisors because we can't just go by the old assumptions that they would go into an academic post and so on. And to a certain extent, if we can, we have to support them. That's a very long and involved explanation, but that's why basically 10 years after Doing that book in two thousand and five, we embarked on uh, a new book, which hopefully would reflect all of these changes.
0: It's definitely worth reading, and you get a very nice overview on what what actually are the obstacles, the challenges related with supervision in the first place to get aware of what this is all about. Supervision. You said not that much has changed. Maybe not that much with the making of supervisors, and then brings me to the second to a second topic or to a main topic. Actually, I saw that you you spent your time very effectively last year during the corona (laughs) crisis as you published early in this year a book called The Making of Supervisors. Can you tell us a little bit about it and what was your main motivation to engage in this?
1: Okay, of course. The background to it, I mean, Doctoral education itself is very important because you're producing, you know, research workers for the knowledge economy, not just academics anymore, but you're producing that research um, person power that will hopefully take Europe, uh, enable Europe to compete with Asia and states, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's important from that point of view. Doctoral supervision is important. We've got dozens of studies showing how crucial it is to the students' chances of a, a good experience and of actually completing and and, and, um, and contributing. And then thirdly, we've just been through this. It's become a very complex part of uh, uh, academic practice. So there's three important reasons there, but I think perhaps um, my view was that a number of the edited studies we've got of doctoral education didn't really focus on supervision as such. They didn't focus on, what I that the three key areas of how a supervisor selected How are they supported? What are they given in terms of development and training and all the rest of it? And how are they rewarded for it? So what I wanted to do was to try and look at that on a global basis. I I was fortunate enough to get two co-editors in the form of Margaret Kiley of Australian National University and Carrie A. Holly of the University of Alabama. And uh, so together, we put together a proposal for a 21-country case study of these three issues across across the globe. And what was actually very interesting, i just mention this as an aside in a way, is that I started crunching the numbers in terms of doctoral graduates. Now, there there are 195 countries in the world, discounting the Vatican City, which is 196, but 195. The 21 we took were responsible in 2017 for 75% of the world's known output of of doctoral graduates. I mean, that's a huge concentration. So that was the basis for the book. And we um, got contributors. We had 29 contributors for 21 countries. And we asked them to write about those three areas, the selection of supervisors, the support available to them, and how they were rewarded and recognised for it.
0: And has there been any surprises for you? When you when you go through the, the contributions of the different authors from the different countries,
1: I think there wasn't to a certain extent this reflected my own ignorance because I know um, reasonably well what's happening in obviously the UK where I live, uh, Australia, New Zealand, within Europe, Ireland, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and so on and so forth, whatever, and in all of those countries. Uh, You've got tight criteria for selection. You've got support, a considerable array of support for supervisors in terms of initial professional development, in terms of being mentored through a first or second supervision, and in terms of being rewarded. It's in the promotion criteria uh, for for chairs and all the rest of it and so on and so forth. I think quite astounded me was the extent to which this wasn't true in the rest of the world. That was that was one thing. Um, the other thing is, and again, this reflects, I'm sorry to say, my own ignorance. I thought that team assumption was standard. Now, it's not. It's not standard. Even within Europe, it's not standard, to be absolutely honest. I mean, so those, those were the, the, the two big surprises, how different countries were in terms of the model, whether it was a single or multiple supervisors, and how different they were in terms of criteria and support.
0: Okay, the, the, the second part is really interesting for me as well, because I thought with the framework which has been developed over in many, many European countries, when we talk about the doctoral schools, that team supervision becomes really something like a standard nowadays. Obviously, it isn't. Uh,
1: no, that, that, it's not. In an awful lot of countries, team supervision is the norm where they have graduate schools graduate colleges, whatever, etc. But outside that, it's often not. It's a single supervisor model. If you then start going to to Asia, the single supervisor model is pretty dominant. Mm -hmm. China's by far the biggest producer. (laughs) It's it's huge. But China, it's still the single supervisor model. And the same is very much true in in, Japan, in South Korea, the big Asian producers, etc. It's still true in India, which Mm -hmm. is up the list, and so it goes on. I just didn't know till we got these studies going. Um, another thing, by the way, that, that um, really came out of this, when I started looking at the numbers, was to realize how many doctoral candidates there were in a number of countries. And the, the two that come to mind particularly are Iran and Turkey. Iran certainly is uh, challenging the UK in terms of number of doctoral students, not yet in terms of graduates, but certainly in terms of numbers of doctoral students. As in Latin America's Brazil. So there are all sorts of new things happening in that field. Again, this came out in the book.
0: It came out in the book, but it's also worth to mention that you published a paper also on UK Grade on the website about numbers. So it's called the the landscape, I
1: think. Yes, it's, um, I think (laughs) essentially I was bored during lockdown. Uh, I got a lot of time to myself. So what, what I did was I went through the Unirank data. They have data on 15,000-odd universities across the globe. And I found all of them which declared having doctoral education. There may be some that had it that didn't declare it. But I got um, basically data on 5,000 universities. I then looked through the United Nations UNESCO data and the World Bank data on doctoral enrollments and doctoral graduates. And I found it's very big business. I mean, globally, about 5,300 Institutions offering doctoral programs, doctoral students two point eight million in twenty. Let me think, twenty seventeen, and doctoral graduates four hundred eighty thousand in twenty sixteen. It's it's a huge area, huge activity, much bigger than I thought it was. To be honest,
0: talking about being bored, I realized that you're working again on a new book, and it's focusing on assessment. If I got it right. Can you tell us a little bit about this already, and what inspired you to look at particular in the area of assessing doctoral students, doctoral candidates, at the end?
1: Yeah, there are there are two things um, um, really. Firstly, with doing the, the work on doctoral supervision, it made me realise how different the arrangements are for the assessment of a doctorate between between countries. I mean, you know, in, in, in Europe we always have externals, in the states they don't. It's done by people who may be external to the department, but they're internal to the institution. And so another thing in many, in many countries, there is in Europe, the stage whereby the, the, the thesis is assessed by a subset of the examiners, usually two or three external examiners. If they're not happy with it, it's not allowed to go forward to the viva. So if it does go forward to the viva, you're not entirely, but pretty well guaranteed that it will it will get through whereas in the uk that's very relatively rare you go through to the viva irrespective vivas in europe are predominantly public occasions and they're celebrations i always remember some years ago um, a colleague at durham saying look i've been invited to uh, a thesis defense in norway and i've been asked to take my academic dress and a party dress why and I said, well, the academic dress is for the viva itself and your party dress is for the celebration afterwards. Again, it's it's very different um, in some other countries. Some countries, Africa and Australia, don't have viva's predominantly. Others, I mean, New Zealand is, is just in the process of darkness. So there's all this going on. And then the second thing is new forms of examination of the of the doctorate so i mean one particular one i'm interested in is the doctorate by contemporaneous publication whereby during your doctoral studies you're expected to publish it's usually two or three articles in international journals as part of those studies and so on you then got the job of examining them now as an examiner do you think well okay they've been published in peer-reviewed journals I must accept them. Or can you say, well, actually, I don't I'm not happy with it. There's all sorts of issues in there. Mm-hmm. There are the examination of the practice-based doctorates. I mean, what criteria do you use for a sculpture or paintings or photographs or a dance or a symphony or something mm-hmm. like that and so on? So there's all sorts of interesting things in there
0: to explore. Yeah, it would be also interesting if there are some kind of practices already around when it comes to assessing the a professional and personal development so not only the research output but how did the person actually develop to be recognized That's as a young colleague at the end of the of the journey indeed and
1: that, that, that is interesting and, and again in a number of um, institutions or I mean, well, certainly in Australia and to some extent in the UK they're asking doctoral students to complete a, a program which will show that development. And that professional skills development before they'll award the doctorate. So at some, some universities that, you know, you can get through the Viva, but if you haven't done the program associated with skills development and all the rest of it and so on, you won't actually get the award until you've done that. So, I mean, again, this fascinating question of where do we go from here? Something that was developed von Humboldt and uh, Victor Schliermacher uh, in the the early 19th century as essentially as a way of recruiting academics, it's now the driver of research manpower or personal power rather across the knowledge economies etc. How does that actually reflect back in on supervision? How does it reflect on examination? If we are telling people that doctoral candidates have all these skills etc etc are we necessarily examining them? Mm -hmm. How do we
0: know? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, you're completely right. And I think it's it's for I would say for the professional community, it's really we are really looking forward to this book because it's it's of essence to understand what is going on globally when we are engaging, for instance, in creating deal agreements. Yeah. And of we have course. two and we are so much used to think that what we are doing is is the standard. But there is actually no standard. <laughs>
1: I I think this is particularly true at the moment in view of um, something I'm broadly supportive of, that these um, large scale universities being created by the EU, where you're getting six or more institutions coming together to offer a collective experience and so on. Mm -hmm. But it's not as easy as it sounds, because they have got different traditions, different values, etc, etc. And actually merging them whether at the doctoral or indeed any other level, is proving quite challenging. I mean, there was a report I saw the other day saying that that they're gonna need twice the amount of funding Mm -hmm. to actually put these together. I mean, at, at the doctoral level, I can see it because I know of one UK institution which is paired with an institution in Berlin. The UAK institution is very heavily externally regulated. We all are. The one in Berlin is not regulated. And actually trying to marry those and marry a doctoral program in common between them is quite challenging.
0: Mm. You don't have only the discussion about who is actually allowed to review the thesis, but you have a much more complex thing. And I know it exactly the same, that, for instance, in Austria, a thesis, if you submit submitted, it's examined, and that's it. Whereas if you submit it somewhere else, you get a, a request for a minor or a major re- revision which is just yes. not possible in our case you get a final grade for this so many issues yeah and it's at least the first step is to understand the system
1: <laughs> grading of doctors as well i mean in some countries uh, including germany some universities you know magna cum laude summa cum laude etc 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 that's unknown in mm-hmm. in um in other countries okay. and again it's it's I think it's quite an interesting area mm-hmm. really because you know, how do you discriminate between PhDs? How do you know what the very best are unless you yeah. have that type of system? Most countries in the world don't. Yeah, It's just a flat yes or no, basically. Yeah.
0: You know? The more you learn about the details, the more complex it becomes.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> it's, fascinating.
0: Yeah. it's fascinating. So, Stan, let me go back to the making of supervisors. So, reading the book, I see that some of the institutions already uh, provide some supports for them. Uh, when I got it correctly, I... Uh, some of them have workshops, and people are able to attend them. To look at mandatory training, this is hardly happening, as far it as I, as far as, So my question to you would be: What is kind of what advice, giving your, waste experience on, on the topic of supervision, and uh, also the training needs, or also the the issues supervisors are facing nowadays? What kind of advice would you give to a senior academic leadership? people, so to say, experienced professors, why should they engage in the topic of professional development of supervisors and how to sell this idea? So maybe some hints for us as professionals, how to sell this idea to our leadership?
1: Well, I I think for experienced supervisors, the world has changed dramatically over the past uh, few years. It's probably changed more dramatically in the past 12 months than than ever before and so on and it, it, you can't simply carry on supervising in the same old way
0: you just can be- yeah i'm interrupting you because i'm a little bit impolite but this is a side comment to another paper stan has published on uk crate about online supervision yes <laughs> it's yeah. a side comment to what had happened the last year so sorry <laughs>
1: That was I, I, I was the third author on that. The two key people were Swapna Kumar and Vijay Kumar, who are the experts in that field. I just organized it, basically. But the idea there was to try to highlight the sorts of things that supervisors could do. And as I say, they're, whether they're supervisors of they're new into it or of an old generation, that's the, that's the first thing, I think. A, you can teach old dog new tricks, and B, you need to in terms of the student experience, because expectations are that much higher, et cetera. But the second thing is, the old thing about supervision, the old adage was, if you could do research, then you could supervise others to do the same. And what the past 20 years has blown away completely is that, because you do need to be an active researcher, but you also need a whole lot of other qualities as well to be a good supervisor. And those qualities need to be acquired at the start of your career. And these days, they need to be acquired very quickly when you get new research students through and so on and so forth, whatever. So, whereas I would prefer, all of us would, just to have voluntary to say, you know, come along, uh, whatever. And I would try very, very hard, I do try very, very hard to make it voluntary with, for example, the blended learning. Etc. Etc. I know in many institutions, in particularly in the UK and in Australia, it's becoming mandatory, which is mandatory, that you before you're allowed to supervise, you have to complete these these programs. And as I say, there can be an argument that it is now such a complex activity that people should be put forward in that direction, although I I do understand the point about not compelling people. Mm. In terms of of how you sell it, I sell it to experienced supervisors by saying, I would really like you to tell me what you do, to tell others what you do. Let me give you an example. Durham, we have awards for excellence in supervision. We've had them for 15 years now, and we've got about 45 winners altogether. Part of the deal is you win, that you work with new supervisors to improve their practice. So every year they do workshops for the new supervisors in their disciplines, et cetera, et cetera. The evaluations by the new supervisors are stratospheric because they're focused on their disciplines. And these are people, the very best of them, will don't say what I got right. They'll also say what I got wrong what things went wrong and what I did about it and all the rest of it and so on and so forth. So that's a real help to new supervisors.
0: So my assumption is also that the, the newer generations of supervisors are quite used to attend trainings. This is what we did with the transferable skill string. So they are used to say, OK, I need an extra training here. Are there any offers? And this is what i experiencing also at my university. That people are not asking for it. It's not that I'm blaming them that they are not doing a proper supervision, but they are asking for support and a kind of a forum for reflection and stuff like this. Yeah? The, the younger generation is much more used to say, OK, I'm open for trainings. I can only benefit from it. Of course, it's need a little bit of time, but in essence, I can just benefit from it.
1: Yes, I agree with that. They're a delight to work with often and uh, really appreciative of the sorts of things that we do with them. The, the other thing I would say, and this is born of, of long experience, is if you can give people practical things that will help them work through their supervision. Just a couple of examples. One of the things we say is it's really important that you negotiate your expectations with students at the start. So what we say we can we can we can give them something like the. Um, Brown, Atkins, Kylie, Cadman, supervise expectation scale. It's a simple little scale, but it's a godsend in terms of understanding where you stand in your assumptions about supervision relative to those of your students. Another similar thing is in co-supervision. We're being encouraged to co-supervise. Again, there, there's a very, very good questionnaire. If you can give people these helpful tools, this will let you get through with it, then I think that works very well as well. You can't go to town on theory. Yeah. I found that my bitter experience. (laughs)
0: Yeah, not Uh, too much theory. Yeah, um, this is what I learned in my trainings as well. They want to have case studies, they want to have practice exchange, and some nice links to the theory when they want to dig deeper and to learn
1: That's that's right, if they do so. But it's. um, I think it's important that they get some exposure to the scholarship Mm-hmm. Um, of doctoral supervision because it's now a very big subject. Scholarship, yeah. We have a bibliography on the, the UK Council of Graduate Education website, and it is now two hundred pages long. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's absolutely you no. Know, I'm not suggesting they read that, but you know, look at one or two of the very very good texts that are are available.
0: Yeah, so I think we could continue for hours. I have the feeling. <laughs> and whenever you mention something, something comes to my mind. What I could what I could ask you. Again. But I, I think we we stop here and maybe we have a second edition of this uh, okay. podcast yeah. in okay. the near future. Okay. Yeah. So allow me to finally draw your attention to the next Pride Conference, which is in the first week of May, which is not so surprisingly uh, will take place online. But we will yeah. hope to say have a next training in the first week of September in Dubrovnik. And we try to meet together in person. So... It remains to me to say thank you very much, Stan, for taking the time and sharing your your knowledge with us. I would also like to thank the listeners to this podcast. Wish you all the best. Stay healthy. And I will ask Stan also to send us some recommendations, some links we put on the website so you can do some reading when you have time. Stay tuned and stay healthy. Thank you very much. Thank you
1: very much.